Abun de Bush Mayu, Neth Kadesh Smach, Tete Malkatath, Newe Sebiano, Akano Bash Mayu, Hafbaro, Havlan, Lakmo, Akwan Anyamono, Washbuklan Haubain, Watahain, Akanadafnan Shbach, La Haubain, Ulote Elan, Elise, you know, Ilu Fesun Minbishu, Metu Dilohi Melkototh, Uhailu, Uteth Bashto, Lo Alan, O Alim, Amin. Let me explain to you why you're applauding. You don't know why you're applauding, do you? That was the Lord's Prayer in Aramaic. And as far as I know, Chad Reinbold is the only one in this church that can do that. So I told him this week, I'm going to talk about prayer on Sunday. I'd like you to begin the service by doing that thing you do. Uh, when he started in the first service, I thought, wait a minute, that sounds like German. But as it went on, I recognized some of the words from my own, my own study. Today we're going to talk about prayer because we're smack dab in the middle of a brand new series entitled Core. Your exercise fitness instructor will tell you if you have a strong core, then you are a strong person. The stronger your core, the stronger you are. What are the core principles of the faith walk? What are the building blocks upon which we lay the foundation to truly walk in a personal way with our Creator? Today we're going to talk about one of those and it's prayer. I've been in church long enough that I have literally heard a hundred or more sermons on prayer. There have been hundreds, if not a thousand or more books written on the subject of prayer. If you've been around the church for a long time, you yourself have witnessed, you've heard hundreds of prayers because prayer is an essential part of almost every kind of worship service. Now, when I was a ninth grader, I was the quarterback on our high school football team, and my tailback was a senior, and his name was Chris. And when Chris was called on to pray before a game, he didn't pray like I prayed. He prayed conversationally. He prayed as though he were talking with God like he would talk to his own father. And that struck me because my experience with prayer, and public prayer especially, was it was kind of formal. It was kind of, you know, ritualized. Then I got to college, and I became best buddies with this guy named Lance. Lance and I are still tight to this day. In fact, about an hour from now, Lance will be doing what I'm doing in Texas at his church. He's a pastor of a church in Dilly, Texas. And the first time I prayed with Lance, we were at a ranch. And we stood outside at night, and the sky was filled with stars. And Lance looked up into the sky without closing his eyes, and he just started praying. And I'm like, wow, now that's cool. Dr. Lee Robertson was the founder and the chancellor of the university uh, where I went to college. And he was an older man. He was tall and slender, and he had silver hair. Uh, he would stand in a double-breasted suit, which was always a very dark color, navy blue, dark gray, black. And he would li lift his hands in that auditorium, just filled with thousands of students. And he would pray in his rolling, deep, rumbling voice and the eloquence which, with which he prayed. It was, like, it was like hearing Moses pray or Elijah. So... As I started to pray a little more publicly, out in the open, 
I'd pray in classrooms with students. I'd pray with other people in a Sunday school room or a meeting of some sort. And then as I prayed in church, I realized that you can pray and use certain words that cause other people to respond while you're praying. I'll never forget the first time I was praying and someone in the group said, amen. I thought, man, I must be learning what I'm doing. I mean, I'm getting the hang of this. And for a while there, I thought the really big deal in prayer, you got to figure out how to pray and what to say to get somebody in the group to go, "Mm, amen. Wow. If you can do that, you must really be getting the attention of God. Absolutely false. In fact, that's what we're going to talk about today because according to Jesus himself, there is a right way to pray and a wrong way to pray. There have been many well-meaning teachers out there who have absolutely butchered the concept of biblical prayer. Some have done it by emphasizing the faith element in prayer. Prayer is all about believing hard enough because after all, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 17, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can pray and say, mountain be moved from here to there and it will be done. Nothing will be impossible for you. And so some latch on to that, and prayer becomes all about believing hard enough and getting other people to believe with you. And we pile up this long list of believing prayers, and God has to do what we're asking. Some have overemphasized the needs or the desire element of prayer. Because after all, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 7, Jesus said, ask and it'll be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And everyone who knocks, the door shall be opened. So to some, fire away, man. It's all about what you want. The prayer list reads like a grocery list. And some, unfortunately, overemphasize the sovereignty element. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign. That means he is in control. The buck stops with God. It's Proverbs Excuse me, it's Psalm 33, verse 10. Verse, uh, 10. The Lord foils the plans of the nations, but his plans, the plans of the Lord, will stand forever. So some have mistakenly come to the conclusion, why should we pray at all? If God's mind is already made up, I mean, if God already has a plan, why would I pray in the first place? We're going to talk about that today. The fact is that the Bible emphasizes all three of those, the faith element, the needs-desire element, and the sovereignty element at the same time. And it does so with beautiful balance. Because here's a reality check for some of us. God does not want you to have everything you want to have. God wants you to have everything he wants for you. And there's a huge difference between the two. So what can we learn from that simple introduction? Well, first of all, we have to begin with God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. His plan will prevail. But he loves you. He loves you so much that he wants you to ask. He wants you to engage. Jesus said, imagine, if your earthly fathers love you as much as they do, imagine how much your heavenly father loves you. And then he also requires faith because he wants you to trust him. He wants you to trust him and nothing else. Everybody who engages in prayer hopes that that exercise will become meaningful. Now look, I am certain in an auditorium this size with two services on a Sunday, there are people at Grace Community Church today who flat out don't pray. 
It's just never been your thing. I mean, you know what you believe about Jesus. You trust the word of God, but prayer, it just doesn't seem to fit your idea about God. There are other people who have prayed, and because they thought prayer was all about getting what they wanted, got frustrated, and they quit praying. Today, I want to try and teach both of those kinds of people how Jesus taught us to pray. There was a 17th century Roman Catholic scholar. His name was Francois Fenelon, and he wrote the following, tell God what is in your heart when you pray. As one would unload their heart, its pleasures, its pains to a dear friend. Tell him about your troubles that he may comfort you. Tell him your longings that he may purify them. Talk about your temptations that he may shield you from them. Show him the wounds of your heart that he may heal them. Lay bare your indifference to good, all of your taste for evil, your instability. If you thus pour out all your weakness, needs, troubles... There will be no lack of what to say. You will never exhaust the subject. Now, more important than what we get when we pray, I'd argue even more important than how we pray is why do we pray in the first place? Have you ever considered this? Have you ever been asked the question, why should I pray? Or why do I pray? I want you to take a few moments and visualize your prayer life. For some, their prayers come out of a book. It's a prayer book. For others, they're rote, memorized prayers that they learned when they were a child. Today, I want to ask you a series of questions very quickly before we move on to give you some general idea of why you pray. Visualize yourself on the following graph. On one side, do you pray to gain control? Man, we got to get control of this situation. I've got to get it to go this way, so I pray. Give yourself a lower number. Or do you pray to give up control? Number two, do you pray to express yourself to God? This is who I am. This is what I believe. This is what I'm hoping for. This is what I want. Give yourself a lower number. Or do you pray to better understand God's way? Number three, do you pray to influence God? Or do you pray to gain perspective? Where are you on that scale? Do you pray to get what you want? Or do you pray to know God? And finally, do you pray only in emergencies? I mean, whatever it is, it's exploding. And that's when you pray. Or do you pray consistently? Were I to visualize your prayer life, the God to whom you pray, what kind of picture would I create in my mind based upon that? You see, here's the big deal. Prayer's not about outcomes. Prayer's about relationships. I want you to begin there, because if someone taught you growing up that prayer is all about outcomes, it's all about getting God to do stuff, they were wrong, because prayer is about relationship. Acts chapter 9 contains a miraculous display of God's power for God's purposes, and I said it that way on purpose, because we always need to be reminded when it comes to prayer and miracles that God does what he does. He demonstrates his power first for his own purposes. Now, I don't know if you know this or not. Sometimes people ask me, Mike, do you believe in miracles? Before I answer that question, let me remind you of something. It is the miracle that causes the skeptic to push back against our faith. A skeptical go along with what Jesus taught until the Bible says something about healing a blind man, 
a paralyzed individual, raising Lazarus from the dead. Then he pushes back, shuts down, because the supernatural intervention of God on behalf of humankind for whatever reason is something the skeptic just doesn't really want to consider or accept. But if you were to ask me, do you believe in miracles? Absolutely, I believe in miracles. But it's different today than it was then. Let me explain why it's different. At the beginning of every major era throughout biblical history, God started that era. Some call them dispensations, a time period whereby God chose to reveal himself to humanity in a slightly different way from the previous time period. At the beginning of every one of those dispensations or eras, God started them with a bang. I mean, I've got a list. It starts with creation. At the beginning of the creation dispensation, God imagined the world and spoke it into existence. That's pretty supernatural. That's pretty miraculous, wouldn't you agree? But then the miracles begin to tail off through the Genesis story. Then we get to Exodus and the Exodus dispensation, the Exodus era. Remember the 10 plagues in Egypt? God did some supernatural things through Moses. But then the miracles began to tail off until we get to the prophets era. Here comes Elijah. Here comes Elisha, some pretty amazing supernatural stuff. Then there's the Jesus era. Then comes the church age. We're about to read about that in a moment. You see, at the beginning of the church age, God gave miraculous abilities to the apostles. Why? To validate their message, to authenticate the story of Jesus. When Paul or Peter or John, when they came into a strange town and they shared the story of Jesus Christ, they were able to double down and validate that message as authoritative because they could heal your sick. It also, by the way, helped separate and weed out the false teachers because, hey, Paul healed the sick. What have you done lately? Nothing? There's the door. You see? At the beginning of the church age, the apostles were capable of miraculous things to validate their message. But as you continue to read through the New Testament, the miracles begin to fade off. So all I'm saying is that it's different today. One of those miracles comes from Acts chapter 9. I want you to read with me in verse 36. Verse 36. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. Now, if you know me, you know that Amy and I, we love big dogs, and I love biblical names. So I've named all my dogs, or most of them, some sort of biblical name. I've had an Abraham, I've had a Solomon, I've had a Titus, I've had a Malachi, uh, I've had a Lazarus, uh, but I thank God that my mother didn't name me anything close to Dorcas, uh, in case you know, you're wondering. Tabitha was always doing good and helping the poor. Verse 37. About that time she became sick and she died and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. This was customary. This was part of Jewish tradition. You wash the body and you put it in an upstairs room. Now follow me. Then the people who gather to mourn gather in what we now know or call the living room. That's where the term came around. Did you know that? We've lost someone we love, they're in an upstairs room, and the people who gather to mourn gather in the living room. This woman is obviously dead, they've washed her, they've anointed her, now they're waiting for Peter to show up to maybe say some words at the funeral. Verse 38, Leda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Leda, they sent two men to him and they urged him, please come at once. 
Peter went with him. When he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and the other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with him. Now, that's a very familiar scene. What are they doing? They're standing around someone they love. They're weeping over the loss, and they're using a a physical reminder to reminisce about the person they've lost. That's what we do. We lose someone, we gather in the den, we gather in the living room or the kitchen, and we start thumbing through photographs. That's what's happening here. Verse, let me find my place. Uh, Verse number 40. Peter sent them all out of the room. That's a little interesting to me because that's exactly what Jesus did in Mark chapter 5 when he raised the daughter of Jairus from the dead. In Mark 5, Jesus sent the disciples and the family out of the room, and then he brought this little girl back to life. Peter is imitating his master. He's copying Jesus. Now, follow me, because this is where this gets incredibly interesting, and this is the part I most want you to see. Then he got down on his knees, and he prayed. And that's all we know. Luke, the author of Acts, does not give us the words Peter prayed. We don't know if this was a lengthy prayer session. Most likely it was the opposite. It was a very brief prayer session based upon how it is recorded in Acts chapter 9. He got down on his knees and he prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. Now wait a minute. I want to be totally honest with you. Peter may not have prayed and then said, Tabitha, get up. He may have prayed and said, Tabitha, get up. I don't know what he was feeling because we don't know what he prayed. We're not privy to his prayer. Either way, she opened her eyes. She saw Peter. She sat up. He took her by the hand. He helped her to his feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, because they had been weeping, and he sent her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. That refers to what I talked about earlier. Many people bought into the story of Jesus because of that immaculate, incredible demonstration, supernatural as it was, by Peter. This is what's important. I want to make sure you get this. Peter was not trying to convince God to raise Tabitha from the dead. When the Bible says that he got down on his knees and he prayed, he wasn't trying to twist God's arm to make everybody in that house happy. We know that from the text. Otherwise, Luke would have given us more detail how he prayed, what he prayed, what he said, how he did it. That wasn't why Peter prayed. He was searching for an understanding of God's will, and that is why we pray. Prayer is about relationship, understanding the will and the plan of God, not an outcome. Every time I have the opportunity to teach on prayer, I contrast two prayers of Jesus. You may have heard me make this comparison before. I believe it bears repeating. I want you to think about the two prayers of Jesus. First, the prayer for Lazarus. John chapter 11, Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead. The prayer lasts seven seconds. In front of all these people and the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus prays the following. Father, thank you for hearing my prayer. I know you always hear my prayer. I said that primarily for the people listening, so they will know you sent me. Lazarus, come out. Now, that's incredible. 
In that moment, death was transformed to life. You talk about a miracle. That is a miraculous, supernatural intervention by God on behalf of man. And the prayer lasted seven seconds. Now, consider his prayer in the garden. The garden of Gethsemane, the night before he would be betrayed, or excuse me, the night he was betrayed, the night before he would be crucified. That prayer lasted for hours. Jesus is grinding through that prayer. Why? Because he's not asking for something supernatural. He's not asking God to do something incredible, amazing. People will talk about this for centuries. No. Jesus, the Son of God, is trying to bring his own will in line with the will of his Father. Remember, if it's possible, Father, let this cup pass by me. That's like saying, I really don't want to go through this. I really don't want to experience this. Nevertheless, he said, not my will, yours be done. Contrast those two prayers and now consider this. The reason I find them so interesting is we typically do the exact opposite. You see, when it comes to something big, I mean, we've got a dying parent We need a miracle here. We've got a a son or a daughter who's walked away from faith. I mean, this is serious. There's been an automobile accident. Someone's hurting. What do we do? We think the best way to solve that problem because we're outcome-oriented is to engage in these long marathon sessions of prayer. Better yet, if we can get 45, 50, 60 people praying with us, we ought to be able to go to God and say, look, God, the numbers are in our favor. Need to do what we're asking. That's the way we think about prayer. But then when it comes to accepting something difficult in our lives, when it comes to accepting that that was not God's plan, this must be God's plan, as difficult as, we don't even pray about things like that. If we do, they're tiny. Jesus did it opposite the way we do it. I want you to turn now to Matthew chapter 5, because in Matthew chapter 5, smack dab in the middle of his first professional sermon, Jesus gives us what's known as the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer. Go to Matthew chapter 5, let me, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 5. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus taught us how to pray. Evidently, according to Jesus, there's a right way and a wrong way to pray. If your prayers are wrapped in selfish arrogance, that's the wrong way to pray. If your prayers are relational and worshipful at the same time, that must be the right way to pray, according to Jesus. Look at chapter 6, Matthew, and verse 5. Jesus said, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. Now, man, I don't know what kind of Jesus you imagine, This is a gutsy Jesus right here because the hypocrites are standing right in front of him. He's talking about the Pharisees. The Pharisees were part of the crowd. And so he says to the crowd, when you pray, don't be like them. Don't be like them. Don't be like them. Don't be like the hypocrites. Now, let me tell you something that you may not know. It wasn't always that way. Ancient rabbis cherished prayer. Ancient scribes, they revered prayer. I came across the following. Someone wrote, 
A, a Jewish rabbi wrote the following, great is prayer, greater than all good works. He who prays within his house surrounds it with a wall that is stronger than iron. So these men at one time believed in prayer. Their only complaint was that they couldn't figure out a way to pray all day long. They just couldn't do it. These men believed, they revered prayer, but something changed, something happened. They had perverted prayer. Jesus calls them hypocrites. Don't pray like the hypocrites. They loved to pray standing in the synagogues, on the street corners, to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received a reward in full. That's it. Verse 6, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your, what's that next word? Father. And the crowd at that moment must have gasped. <gasps> Father. You see, there were no ancient gods. There were no ancient religions that taught that our creator could be addressed as Father. Even to this day, Christianity is set apart as the only world religion that addresses our creator as Father. When you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father. I can't believe he said that. Our Father is unseen, but then your Father, he said it again, who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't keep babbling on like pagans. They think they're going to be heard because of their many words. We can picture that, right? Ancient customs, the fire is flickering, there's rhythmic chanting, people are dancing. They're chanting over and over and over and over and over again. Don't pray like that. Verse 8, do not be like them. There's a wrong way to pray. For your father already knows what you need before you ask him. Verse 9, this then is how you should pray. I'd like you to underline that in your Bible if you like to take notes. Because what follows is very often referred to as the Lord's Prayer. I'd like to encourage you to refer to this as the model prayer because that's what it is. This was never intended to be memorized and then regurgitated at certain occasions. This is an example of how we are to pray. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I want to try and teach you in the little bit of time I have left how to construct a meaningful relational prayer life that is both personal and worshipful at the same time. We're going to do it by answering five quick questions. Here's question number one. Who is God? Who is God when you pray? If the only thing I could learn about God was what I learned by listening to you pray, what kind of God would I imagine? Would he be a genie that comes out of a bottle that grants you every wish? Look what Jesus said. Our Father, whose name is hallowed. There it is. The perfect balance between our God, our Father, the object of our affection, whose name is hallowed, the object of our worship. The balance of affection and reverence. When you pray, that's the image your words should create. John MacArthur wrote, prayer begins and ends with the needs of, not with the needs of man, but with the glory of God. 
it should be concerned primarily with God and how he can be glorified. So again, were I to draw a picture of your God based solely upon my listening to your prayers, what kind of God would I imagine? Who is God? Question two, what is his plan? Verse 10, your kingdom come and your will be done. This is perhaps the most difficult part of prayer. Because most of us, when we pray, if we're outcome-oriented, we're not really interested in God's plan. We're interested in our own. Again, John MacArthur writes, Prayer may well be the most difficult spiritual exercise we engage in. It is hard work because it is selfless. What is his plan? Number three, what do I need? Verse 11, give us today our daily bread. You know what the word daily means? It means today. It means sufficient for today. Jesus is not telling us that we can't pray about tomorrow, but he's saying when you pray, make sure your prayers focus on now, not yesterday, not tomorrow. I never pray about my IRA 20 years from now. I never pray about my 401k 30 years from now. I never pray about my retirement in the future. I don't do it. I don't have an IRA and I don't have a 401k, but I don't pray about any of them. Do you you know why? Because of the model prayer. You see, when you pray about today's needs, and by the way, theirs was bread, not a motorcycle. Theirs was bread, not a ball game. Theirs was bread, not a new car or a bigger house. When you pray about today's needs, you, you incorporate a dependence upon God that is rich in developing the faith walk. Chuck Swindoll wrote, we're not asking God to give us every little whim that tickles our fancy. Rather, we're trusting God to provide what we need to serve him. Here's question four. What have I done? Verse number 12, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. What are debts? They're moral shortcomings. Part of your prayer needs to involve confession. Forgive. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sin, he is always faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. David prayed, following David's egregious sin with Bathsheba, adultery, murder. Psalm 51 verse 10, David prays, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, Verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. What have I done? Question five, where am I going? Where am I going? When you pray, where are you going? What matters? What's most important? Lead us not, verse 13, into temptation but deliver us from evil. Wait a minute. Lead us not into temptation. I would imagine we could take that one for granted, right? I mean, God doesn't tempt anyone, right? You're exactly right. It it comes from James chapter 1 and verse 13. When you're tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So what is Jesus saying? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus is using the first part of the statement to emphasize the last part of the statement. Deliver us from evil. That's what matters. It would be like you had worked 16 hours at the office. And I mean you are exhausted. 
And so you go to your boss and you say, I'm not going to stay one more minute. I've got to get home. If the boss asked you to stay 10 more minutes, you probably would, wouldn't you? You see, that's not the purpose. That's not the message of the statement. The first part of the statement is given to emphasize the last part of the statement. I'm exhausted. I've got to get home. That's what's happening here. Lead us not into temptation. Of course God wouldn't do that, but he will deliver us from evil. Look, here's the deal. I want you to pray, and I want this to be a praying church. I want someone who's never prayed in this auditorium to start building a prayer life. I want someone who's gotten frustrated with prayer and quit to start reconstructing an effective prayer life. Not because I want you to get stuff from God. Instead, I want you to pray so that you might know him better, better understand yourself. Look, before I quit, I got to help you with one last thing. If you've never prayed, let me tell you how you can do it. Number one, you can make a list, make a prayer list. I've done it. It's a great way to keep your mind from wandering while you pray. Now, if you've done this a lot, it can become monotonous and routine. Uh, But it's a great tool. It's a great aid to help someone struggling to pray. Number two, you can pray scripture. You know that big book in the middle of your Old Testament called Psalms? 150 chapters. The majority of them started out as prayers that were later turned to music. You can read some of the Psalms in your prayer. The way I choose to pray is what I'd call dialogue prayer. Dialogue prayer. I'll turn to Proverbs. Today's August chapter 6. Excuse me. Today's August 6th. I'll turn to Proverbs chapter 6, and I'll begin reading. And if something jumps off the page at me, if something means something to me, I'll pause and I'll reflect and I'll pray in dialogue with the Father. Then I'll go back to reading. If you grew up believing that prayer is all about outcomes, I want you to rethink that understanding because Jesus taught us how to pray in the model prayer, and he taught us that prayer is about relationship. The perfect balance between our affection for our Father and our worship of our God. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed humbled as we bow before you, the author, the creator, the sustainer of all that is. Father, we wouldn't even have an audience with you. We couldn't even address you were it not for you. Your grace, your mercy, your love, your compassion, primarily your son, Jesus Christ. So Father, I pray that as we look to you, you might teach us to build, to construct, to fabricate a relational prayer life that is meaningful and more than sufficient. Teach us to pray using the model prayer your son gave us. And I pray it in his name. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Hope you go make it a fantastic week. I'll see you next time. Tyler's over there. Make sure you hug his neck. See you next time.